Hey there, and welcome to Intrigue Out Loud. Today's show is about the debt ceiling. The debt ceiling. It's a phrase that's repeated often enough to almost render it meaningless. The debt ceiling. Sounds innocuous enough. The debt ceiling. <laughs> Here we go again. The debt ceiling. They'll just lift it. The debt ceiling. We hear about it all the time, and it always seems to go away. But what if the U.S. breaches it? Will I still have a job? Will I still have money in my retirement account? Will I get my social security check on time, my Medicare check? Will the global economy implode? The debt ceiling. It's a phrase that sits in limbo, somewhere between bureaucratic banality and unfathomable destruction. Here to talk about the debt ceiling is Mark Zandi. He is the chief economist at Moody's Analytics, a regular contributor to the Washington Post, Philadelphia Inquirer, and CNBC, the host of the Inside Economics podcast. And best of all, he joins me next. Hi, Mark. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Ethan. Good to be with you. Thanks for the opportunity. So a little tongue-in-cheek question to start. Uh-huh. Are you looking forward to this conversation? You have a PhD in economics. Is the debt ceiling an interesting economic phenomenon? Uh, well... I might be a little weird. Everything economics is interesting to me. So there isn't a single thing that I don't find interesting when it comes to economics and business. So yeah, it's fascinating on lots of different levels in terms of the economics, the fiscal issues, the, uh, the obviously what's going on politically. Uh, yeah, there's a lot there. Uh, makes it a very interesting topic for sure. Okay, good. I'm glad to hear that. Does your eyes glaze over when we talk about debt limit? No, it it just seems it just seems so distinct from what economics really is, which is like you know the the study of the study of the way money moves, supply and demand. There are interesting things about the debt limit, of course, and we'll we'll get to those. But it just seems to me and not to not to uh, get ahead of myself here but it seems like a political issue oh very much so I mean but it, you know a political issue that has very significant economic implications right so absolutely yeah when we'll get to those but but first of all the the big interesting thing about the the debt limit is that it has to do with debt so why do countries take on debt to begin with uh, lots of reasons. Uh, I mean, uh, like households, uh, they make investments. Uh, so like when a household wants to buy a home, it takes out a mortgage or buys a car, it takes out an auto loan, and then consumes those housing and uh, vehicle services over time. So it's like an investment. So the governments make all kinds of investments. The obvious is infrastructure, but uh, uh, vaccines in the middle of COVID, uh, good example, um, education. Uh, it's an investment in uh, the, uh, the the children of of, uh, of our society. Uh, so uh, to do that, uh, debt makes a lot of sense, right? Because you're uh, you're investing in for the longer run. Uh, normal just operations, you know, cash flow. Uh, government's a big business, takes in a lot of cash, uh, writes a lot of checks. Uh, it would be kind of shocking, surprising if it didn't have some uh, borrowing to kind of manage through all that. And then, uh, you know, the government has the ability to take on debt uh, for, you know, a considerable period of time um, um, because it has the power to tax, right? So a pretty unique situation. So if push comes to shove, if, you, if the government, if governments need uh, uh, revenue to service the debt, they have the ability to do it. So it helps it, makes it easier for them to, to borrow. And then, in the case of the United States, we're kind of in a very special spot because we're the AAA credit on the planet, at least right now, you know, before this mess. Uh, and uh, that allows us to borrow 
uh, at very low interest rates. Uh, and we're uh, in, uh, very lucky in times of crises when things are going bad all over the world. Money comes here because it's the safest place on the planet. And, you know, that cushions the blow. Uh, so that makes it easier to borrow uh, and take on, on debt because you can service it, right? It's not uh, with low rates. It just makes it easier to afford. So lots of different reasons, uh, all of them pretty good reasons. Uh, you don't, you know, like anything, like any, uh, uh, when, when it comes to leverage, you, you know, you, you, you don't want to have too much. That's that's a problem. Uh, too little is probably not the greatest idea either. You're not maximizing your ability to grow. You want something in between. Uh, so it's a it's a balance. But uh, leverage is a, debt is a very important tool that can be, when used wisely, can really help uh, an economy grow in the long run. How long has the U.S. government borrowed money to fund operations? Forever, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, Alexander Hamilton, you know, uh, assumed the uh, debts of the, the states during the uh, in the wake of the Revolutionary War. And uh, uh, at the time, the, those uh, that debt was uh, worth pennies on the dollar because investors didn't think they'd ever get their money back. I mean, this was this is revolutionary war debt. But uh, Hamilton assumed the debt, uh, the federal government. Uh, he was the Treasury Secretary, and he assumed the, the state debt and uh, paid 100 cents on the dollar, and, and by so doing, established the the credit of the United States of America. You know, it was like, you know, if you invest in the United States of America, it's money good. You know, we're the Lannisters. Uh, you remember Game of Thrones? We <laughs> of pay our debts, right? Yeah. yeah. And by so doing, you have tremendous uh, benefits, uh, and we've been enjoying that since the beginning of our founding, and that goes all the way back to uh, Alexander Hamilton. And it was assuming of that debt, by the way, that really sealed the deal for uh, the United States of America. So that's how we became a nation. And before that, we were, you know, a bunch of states. Uh, uh, yeah. So, you know, uh, that was a way to to kind of federalize uh, things and um, centralize power and uh, have a, a, a fulsome federal government. And that, that was really when the United States of America became the United States of America. I could but won't force you to suffer through a rendition of uh, the, the debate between Hamilton and Jefferson from Hamilton the Musical. I could, but I won't. Uh, <laughs> Did you, have you seen the? You've seen it. I, I've listened to the soundtrack. I've never been able to go to the show. Oh yeah, highly recommend. Uh, <laughs> have you read the book? I have. It's sitting on my yeah. Isn't it a great book? I mean, it's it's now. She's phenomenal. Yeah, I, I actually I went to Hamilton College, so I, I have a, a, a strange connection there. Uh, so big fan of Hamilton, uh, big fan of Jefferson, too, in a lot of ways. But I think Hamilton got this right. But but one one thing, Mark, you mentioned it a little a little earlier. Is there a problem with having too much debt? I mean, what sort of costs are incurred when borrowing starts to outpace incoming revenues too quickly? Yeah, I mean, if you have too much debt and uh, your debt service is high, meaning you got to shell out a lot in terms of uh, principal and interest, uh, uh, then uh, you've got a couple problems. Uh, you know, one is you're spending more of your revenue, tax revenue, on servicing the debt and not on you know things that are important, like you know the military or Social Security or infrastructure. Uh, so if you borrow too much money uh, and are paying out too much uh, in principal and interest, it, it squeezes out your, your ability, the government's ability to spend on things that people, you know, value. Um, and that gets, you know, uh, particularly hairy politically because you're paying those interest payments to domestic investors, you know, households and businesses here, but also a lot of global investors. So mm. that includes a lot of different 
nationalities. That's, you know, the, the British, that's the Saudis, that's the Chinese, that's the Japanese. So that gets a little complicated. So uh, you're telling me, this is the taxpayer, I'm pretending to be the taxpayer. You're telling me I'm spending more of our uh, tax revenue uh, uh, to pay the debt to Chinese bondholders than I am on the military to, to protect ourselves? Does that does that make sense to anybody? And then of course, if, they get, if the debt gets too high, and this is less of an issue for the United States at this point in time, more of an issue for other countries, because we are the reserve currency, uh, is at some point, uh, you know, investors begin to question, well, the debt service is so high, are you really going to be able to pay me back in a timely way, especially when I'm buying debt with a 30-year maturity, you know, right. way out into the future, and they begin to demand a higher interest rate to compensate for the risk that you that the government may not pay. And then you get into this, potentially in this kind of self-reinforcing negative cycle where the higher rates means higher interest payments, you know, higher interest payments, uh, you know, uh, means less likely you're going to be able to pay interest rates go rise. You get into this kind of potential doom loop that, you know, some countries, particularly emerging economies, have gotten themselves into. Like, you know, Argentina is a good case in point, yeah. you know, example of that. Well, that's that's where the debt ceiling comes in, right? To ensure fiscal responsibility, to ensure that the U.S. remains a trustworthy and creditworthy borrower. How well has it worked? What what hap- What's happened to the federal debt in recent decades? Well, the debt limit was, that's the idea that was put on the planet a little over a century ago. Uh, it, it, it hasn't, in my view, it has not worked. It's certainly not working now, uh, you know, given our acid politics. You know, it's not like we're uh, under the pressure of increasing the debt limit, coming up with solutions to our long-term fiscal problems. That's not what's happening. Uh, and in fact, it, it threatens uh, to make our fiscal situation even worse because uh, with all the drama, it weighs on the economy. If, if, if in fact, we did breach, uh, you know, clearly that would push the economy into recession. And, you know, that makes the fiscal situation worse, right? Because tax revenues decline in a recession. Government spending increases because of all the automatic, so-called automatic stabilizers, you know, unemployment insurance and food stamps and that kind of thing kicks in. And so your fiscal situation becomes even darker. And there's no way that lawmakers can do anything substantive on our addressing our long-term fiscal problems in a period of a few weeks. And that's what we, right now, that's what we got, a few weeks, even a few months. I mean, the, the issues we have uh, with regard to our long-term fiscal is, uh, uh, situation, these are related to very deep-seated issues that take a lot of thought and you have to be very careful around Medicare and Medicaid, the cost of medical services, Social Security. I mean, these are really pretty weighty things can't so can't address that in the, in the heat of a debt limit battle it just doesn't happen and certainly not in in the in this day and age maybe maybe it was helpful 30 40 years ago but now our politics are so bad uh that uh you know it, it's not it's, it's definitely not going to be the debt limit's not going to be a, a forcing mechanism for substantive uh fiscal reform it's just going to be a lever for uh, creating drama and angst and uh, problems just to reiterate that point, I mean, if the debt limit hasn't worked as intended, if it hasn't ever truly forced a national reckoning on spending, and to hear you say it, it could only ever really work at the margins, uh, these sorts of late hour debt limit debates, what has the debt limit done? Well, increasingly, it's just creating great chaos, uh, yeah. drama, uh, you know, I, I don't, nothing of substance. I mean, uh, in every one, two, three years, depending on how High the increase the debt limits increased or or sometimes how long it's suspended, uh, we're back at it right. And each yeah. time we're back at it, it just feels like it's just 
has the potential for getting worse and worse and worse. I mean, obviously, this debt limit battle is particularly uh, nerve nerve wracking because of of the very acid political environment, but also because of the the fact that the House of Representatives is uh, is uh, uh, the, controlled by the Republicans, but with an incredibly thin majority, there isn't a whole lot of room to maneuver uh, for in negotiation. And of course, Speaker McCarthy, who was Speaker of the House, uh, uh, had to give up a lot of power uh, to become Speaker, and so in a very tenuous spot politically, it can be thrown out by one one upset Republican congressman. So there isn't a whole lot of uh, ability to negotiate for him, uh, which again, if he can't negotiate, certainly he's not a credible, you know, source of uh, of uh, negotiation. Th- that makes it very difficult to come up with a, a you know a, a a solution to all this, and that thus the high level of angst that you know exists in the current situation. He says he has been negotiating. He says that he has staked out a position, uh, and he proposed last. Two weeks ago, alongside the rest of the Republican conference, uh, a plan to lift the debt ceiling. What would that plan do? Uh, well, the plan, just to refresh, is uh, to scale back the growth in uh, discretionary government spending uh, and uh, uh, have some some. There's some changes with regard to uh, fossil fuel, making it easier to permit and lower the permitting fees. Roll back the Inflation Reduction Act tax credits for green energy. Uh, uh, roll back some of the things that uh, President Biden has proposed on student lending, call back uh, some COVID relief funds that have not been spent. There's a whole potpourri of things like that. It's really small potatoes in the grand scheme of things, and it's all about cuts in discretionary spending, which, you know, that's not where the problem is. I mean, discretionary spending is a pretty small piece of the pie, the federal spending pie, and it's, it's no bigger today as a share of the economy than it was 50, 60 years ago. And even under current law, before even thinking about what the House Republicans would like to do here, it's going to decline pretty significantly as a share of the economy. So that's not the problem uh, in terms of our long-term fiscal situation. It's the it's Medicare and Medicaid primarily and Social Security to some degree. And there's nothing, obviously, in, in the proposal to to address that. So, you know, I don't know that it solves any major problems. And the thing that makes it, you know, particularly problematic in the current environment here and now is that the cuts in government spending are happening beginning in the fourth quarter of this year. And that's precisely when a majority of economists, CEOs, and global investors think we're going into recession already. Not the kind of thing you sort of want to do, you know, uh, in, in, the, in, the, in that uh, kind of uh, economic environment. So I'm not a fan, you know, of those things. Yeah, even abstracting from, you know, the particulars of what He'd like to do some of which I, you know, I'm bored with. Some of which, you know, I, I'm not as comfortable with. Um, but that's not the point. The point is that it doesn't solve our long term, doesn't address our long term fiscal problems at all. It's cutting where we don't really. I don't think anybody really. If they thought if they really sat down and saw what we were cutting, makes a whole lot of sense. That's not where the action is. And and then also it just complicates things here in the near term when the economy's trying to not avoid a recession. Again, we don't want to go into a recession because if we do our fiscal problems just become even worse than they are right now. Not to mention that it's probably a non-starter for President Biden and, and the Senate Democrats. Yeah, it's not happening. Yeah, that's not happening. But, you know, it's a, I think it's fine. It's a starting point for discussion, negotiation. You know, I think it was it was it, it, it's helpful to in the sense that now McCarthy and Biden are, are meeting right. as we speak. Yeah, as we speak. And that came out of the 
the fact that uh, McCarthy could get that legislation through and get it passed. So I think that's a you know reasonable thing. But let me say, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I don't think the debt limit should be used as a forcing mechanism. I don't think, again, as I said, I, I think it's counterproductive and doesn't work. And that's going to be the case going forward. That should just be increased. I mean, yeah. it's just common sense. I mean, look, we as taxpayers, we uh, already spent the money. Uh, and the bi- what's happened is the bill is now due. And by not raising the debt limit, what we're saying is, oh, we're not going to pay the bill. Now, does that make sense to anybody? Absolutely not. So, you know, you got to raise the debt limit. But having said that, you know, we, all, we also have a budget that has to be uh, put into place for fiscal year 24, beginning in October 1. And uh, so we got to that's got to be done, too. Otherwise, the government will shut down. So you got two pieces of legislation on the debt limit on, the, on government spending that has to be done here in the next few months. So do them at the same time, uh, increase the debt limit without strings, but negotiate on the budget. And that's fair game. That's what the budget's all about. That's where you set government spending levels, the composition of spending, taxes, everything else. So I think you can have, you know, a dual track here uh, and, you know, get this thing done um, and uh, not not breach the limit. For sure. uh, I mean, obviously, we've, they've got to figure out a way not to do that. Just to put a pin in this, I mean, is it safe to say that the debt limit has become a political tool? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's all it okay. is. It's just a, it's a, it's a vehicle for drama. Uh, yeah. And, you know, right right now, markets haven't, there's some stress lines in the financial system developing, which we can talk about if you'd like, but markets so far have been pretty nonplussed by it. I mean, they're not, no hair on fire, but I, you know, I suspect that there uh, going to be some, uh, uh, some volatility in markets, a euphemism for a lot lower stock prices at some point. In fact, I, I may even go so far as to say it's almost necessary because without the uh, uh, volatility in markets, without a lot of red on the screen, I'm not sure uh, we're going to get the political will. These guys are going to, the lawmakers are going to have the political will to actually sign on the dotted line. They're going to need, we need a lot of red and that would uh, cause uh, you know donors and constituents and uh, everyone else to get really upset and say to lawmakers, hey, you, you guys got to figure this out, come to terms. So it's almost like we're not going to be able to get across the finish line here in, uh, with a signed piece of legislation unless we do have some bad days in the equity market. Right. I mean, you've talked about the fact that market volatility in the past forced lawmakers to see the errors of their ways and, and sort out these debt crises. To your point, it seems like there's more complacency this time that inf- investors, think tanks, pundits aren't responding with the same level of urgency. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's right. Uh, and it, it, I think it goes to the fact that uh, we've been through this so many times before now, uh, and I think uh, investors think they've seen this movie before and they know the right. ending. They've become a nerd to all of this. Uh, and it, it, in fact, I, I was on a CNBC interview and uh, the, uh, the uh, really good um, CNBC um, uh, host made the point that if you go back to 2011, stock market declined 20% in that period. And you, you you would have done a lot better if you never sold, right? Because uh, it came right back up after once the debt limit was uh, you know no longer an issue. So uh, if you can't time the downs and the ups, it, much better you just don't do it. And if you don't do it, then markets go nowhere. So the, his point was, you know, investors are thinking I shouldn't I shouldn't respond at all because I'm gonna it's gonna go down maybe maybe it comes back up, but I'm not I'm not biting at that. Which ironically means if the market doesn't go down, maybe we actually won't get a deal because there's not enough pressure. So we're kind of in this hall of mirrors. <laughs> it's like really, it's going to be fascinating to see how it all play from a 
purely economic perspective, academic <laughs> perspective. It's going to be fascinating to see how this thing all plays out. Everyone thinks they know the end of the movie until uh, Ned Stark is is lying headless at the end of season one of Game of Thrones. Yeah, right? A great. I'm going to use that. That is great. That's exactly <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I I still vividly remember that that uh, that. Uh, uh, that uh, scene. Yeah. But Mark, as we approach the aptly and terrifyingly named X state, I don't know why that, that word just sends a, a shiver down my spine with the, the X state. For those that don't know that that's the day when uh, uh, the debt ceiling is breached and it can't be precisely calculated. It may arrive somewhat unexpectedly. We, we think it may happen or you think it may happen between June 1st and August 10th or so yeah Uh, Yeah. okay so that's a big window we just don't know when it will when it will come but let's consider uh, uh, the impact of a few potential scenarios first of all we've talked about it a a bit but what's been the impact so far as far as debt servicing prices are concerned are are there consequences for even debating a default Uh, there's some fissures in the financial system i mean for example if you go look at the yield on the one month treasury bill uh, that has shot up in the last few days. Uh, and if you do a, kind of a little bit of uh, calendar arithmetic, one month from now is uh, is what? Is uh, June 9th. Uh, and uh, Secretary Yellen said the X date could be June 1. We're estimating the most likely X date to be June 8th. So, so invest this, these are now, the one month security is now maturing on the other side of this. So investors are saying, hey, you got to pay me more interest to compensate for the risk for me to buy that one month treasury security because there is a possibility that there is a breach and maybe I won't get paid. So that that's a fissure. You can look at so-called credit default swap, CDS. Uh, there, That's a market where you can go and buy effectively insurance uh, against the default of a bond, a treasury bond, uh, and you pay a premium, you know, like any insurance. And if you look at the cost of that premium, it has shot up very significantly in the last uh, you know few weeks. It's much higher today than it was back in than was back in 2011. I don't know if I'd read too much because that's not a very liquid market. There's a lot of trading, and it can move based on a, you know a few trades. Uh, but nonetheless, I mean, the, I'd say those are the kind of fissures in in the system. Uh, they, they they haven't turned into fault lines yet. Certainly no earthquakes, but I suspect in the next few days, depending on what happens here between um, President Biden and Speaker uh, McCarthy. Uh, could, it could just you know uh, it's because things are happening here pretty quickly today's show is sponsored by hubspot public speaking is no easy feat but if you can articulate your thoughts and emotions with clarity that is really powerful stuff and that's exactly why hubspot made a brand new business communication guide it'll help you speak with power and poise in the workplace and win lots of brownie points with your peers. Check it out for free at the link in the show notes. So a couple more scenarios. First, the the fever dream and then the nightmare. Uh, What happens to the U.S. economy if there's a a short-term debt ceiling breach, you know, a handful of hours or a day or two? Uh, Well, I, I think you see turmoil in markets because of the uncertainty with regard to, you know, uh, will lawmakers actually get get this done, sign a piece of legislation and increase it? Uh, you know, there's not uh, in that scenario, um, you know, if it's an hour or two, uh, you know, I see some volatility in markets, but, uh, you know, I don't think it's existential to the markets or economy. 
if it's a week, let's say if it goes drags on for a week, I think that's enough to uh, undermine confidence to the point that given how fragile things are, we're going to go into a, a kind of a mild recession. Uh, but a few hours, probably not. I mean, it does, it will add, it depends on why, you know, they, they missed it by a few hours. If it was a mistake, that's one thing, which is possible. You just didn't get it together. You know, there's a lot of moving parts to legislatively to get a piece of legislation done and signed by the president. And they may not just be able to execute. And that's a mistake. They didn't mean to default. Everyone knows they didn't mean to uh, breach, but they did. But if they actually breached uh, because they they thought that's a good, that's a, you know, we're doing that we're breaching, uh, then that's a different thing. And the, you know, you might be, we will probably be facing higher interest rates for a considerable period of time because Investors are going to rightly ask, well, what happens next time? Uh, you know, what happens a year from now or two years from now? So they're going to say, hey, uh, you know, this feels really unstable to me. You want me to buy your debt? You got to pay me a much higher interest rate. So there's going to be costs involved with the, even a short-term breach of the limit if it's not simply a mistake. Even if, But even if a mistake, we're going to be paying higher interest because they're going to say, oh, you can make us make, make, why should I think you're not going to make a mistake again and pay me late, you know, so potentially pay me late. So I think, I think it's going to cost us regardless, uh, you know, but if it's a few hours, probably not enough to push us into recession a week, uh, we're, we're in, we're going in, you know, at that point. In order to assuage those creditors concern, should, would we expect the treasury to prioritize debt servicing in order to avoid a debt default in that scenario? Yeah, they, that's the one thing they can prioritize. They can pay the debt on, on the debt because that's on a different accounting system, so-called the Federal Reserve Wire. Uh, it's different from the accounting system the Treasury uses to cut other checks. So they they, they will, I, I, I think, I, I mean, I, I, I would be shocked if they didn't prioritize debt payments. Uh, and not that investors are going to say take a lot of solace in that because they're also going to say, well, Really, how long are you not going to pay Social Security recipients on time or the military on time, and you're going to continue to pay me? Remember, I'm a Chinese bondholder. I'm a Saudi bondholder. I mean, given you know all that's going on in the world, really? And the investor's going to say, no, I'm not sure about that. I don't know if they sell at that point, but they're going to stop buying. They certainly not yeah. buy as much. And by that, by that mere act, that means interest rates will be higher. So it doesn't take... You know, the, even if the Treasury prioritizes the debt and, and there's no technical default on the debt, it doesn't save us. I mean, that is still, we're going to pay higher interest rates. Right. And if Chinese bondholders are upset, imagine how upset Social Security uh, recipients might be or Medicare recipients. Well, can you imagine the nightly news? I mean, right. the nightly news, you know, you, the Social Security recipient to get their check in the mail or, you know, electronically, and they, they miss their rent payment. Therefore, the landlord knocking on their door can you imagine those kind of stories i mean it's, it's politically untenable and and here's the nightmare scenario and i can feel uh, uh my face getting flushed just thinking about it what if what if lawmakers fail to raise the spending limit for weeks or months who would go unpaid what government services would be lost what might happen to the global economy do we have the economic lexicon to describe this well, I think the word's catastrophe. Uh, I think, it, you know, uh, or pick your synonym. I mean, I, I think that's pretty clear. It would be just complete washout, uh, a mess. Uh, I mean, stock prices would be way down. Uh, interest rates would, would be way up. Foreign exchange markets would be in turmoil. And of course, it started hitting the economy immediately. We start losing jobs. Unemployment would start to rise. 
Uh, and then it's not, well, you know, the Fed would start lowering interest rates. That would help. But federal government presumably can't do anything. They can't step in, you know, because they can't agree on anything. And so the economy starts to evaporate. I mean, and just simply the fact the government is not cutting checks, right? I mean, federal government's a big business and they, a lot of businesses and households depend on the government. If the government's not cutting checks on time, all those businesses and households, have, they've got a, they got a big problem. You're not going to be able to pay, make payroll. They're not going to be able to pay rent and the economy is going to sink pretty rapidly. And if the longer it goes on, obviously the darker the scenario, the higher unemployment goes and like, you know, catastrophes is the word. Uh, and of course, I'm just talking near term and long run, you, you know, think about that, what investors, how investors are going to view us longer run. They're just going to say, look, I, I can't trust you're ever going to get this to, mm. you know, pay me back on time unless you substantially change this whole system. Uh, I, I, you know, you're going to have to pay me a much higher interest rate to compensate for the future risk that you're not going to, you're going to do this again. And then, and then, you know, then the costs mount, you know, very, very significantly, very quickly. And from, from what I understand, I mean, the, the U.S. Treasury bond serves as sort of the benchmark that all other bonds, you know, sovereign bonds, municipal bonds, corporate bonds mirror, try to match, but can't get quite below. So it just would it make borrowing across the board more expensive? Yeah, absolutely. The Treasury bond is the benchmark because it's money good going back to Alexander Hamilton. We're the Lannisters. We always pay. And as such, uh, there, you know, there's no been, there's never been a question about getting paid on time. And uh, so it's the so-called risk free uh, bond interest rate. And all other bonds are priced off of that corporate debt, mortgage loans, uh, consumer loans, everything is priced off. Lo all bank lending is priced off of the ten-year treasury, you know, a treasury bond of some maturity, and that's because it's risk-free. But if it's not risk-free, then it shakes up that entire system, and you know, uh, rates for everything go up considerably, uh, and uh, you know, add to our costs, and and uh, you know, weigh heavily on the economy. Would the Treasury's loss of credibility damage the U.S. dollar's popularity? I mean, put it put a different way, would this be a gift? Would it would a default be a gift to America's adversaries? Yeah, absolutely, in lots of different ways. I mean, it would diminish the reserve currency status of the U.S. because, again, uh, people, countries hold dollars uh, in savings for emergencies and other needs, and they hold dollars because it's money good. They know that that is going to be there for them when they need it. The reserve currency status of the U.S. would be would be under question because the countries would say it's not safe for me to hold all my savings or a lot big chunk of my savings in, in the dollar because <clears throat> I don't know if I'm going to get paid, you know, as a bondholder. And so uh, the the dollar becomes less important in global trade, investment, economic activity. You know, it also has geopolitical considerations as well because if the dollar is less important to the rest of the world in terms of trade and investment. Then you know our stature and our ability to influence what's going on uh, globally will be diminished as well. Uh, so it has not only economic implications but obviously geopolitical implications. Mark, a couple couple more questions. You're optimistic about this. You were on Capitol Hill last week, uh, and you say that you, there was a, a a strong sense of bipartisanship about finding a solution. I didn't to, say, so, I don't think I said that, Ethan. Okay. I said yeah. it, 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 less partisanship than I thought. I wouldn't say <laughs> that's a low, that's a very low bar to clear. Mark. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I, I wouldn't say 
bipartisanship, I'd say less partisanship than I had thought there would be. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so in co- in concrete terms, I'll tell you what you said. Uh, you <laughs> you said that lawmakers you predict will ultimately kick the can down the road to the end of the fiscal year in September. What happens then? Well, then I th- I think they pass two pieces of legislation. It could be combined. One would increase the debt limit, no strings attached, clean debt limit. Uh, but at the same time, a piece of legislation to fund the government in fiscal year 24, keep the government open uh, beginning on October 1. And that would include some cuts to government spending and other changes that I think House Republicans would find uh, uh, that they would like. Uh, and uh, so uh, both parties here in the negotiation can claim some at least rhetorical victory. The president can say, look, I got a clean debt limit bill through. I wasn't held hostage. And the uh, Republicans could say, look, I got some government spending cuts and other you know, things that I needed, needed and wanted and think are good for, the, good for America. And we can go on uh, to the next de- debt limit battle. You know, hopefully they increase the debt limit. Uh, enough that we don't have to address this until after the next election. Because if, if they if they only raise it enough that gets us into next year before the election, ooh, that's going to be talk about uh, unnerving. Uh, that'll be yeah. very unnerving. Yeah, worth worth highlighting that point for the international audience. That uh, as much stress as we all feel right now, uh, it, it could be worse the next time. That's why I think a debt limit is no longer a viable, you know, useful right. tool because this is this is only going to get worse each and every time. Last question: While we have you here, how worried should we be about other pressures inside the economy right now? Stubborn, stubborn inflation, banking instability, or are all eyes looking at the debt limit? No, we got our problems. Uh, you mentioned the bank the situation; that's an issue. Uh, clearly, banks are tightening down on their underwriting, and loan growth is going to weaken and. That's going to be a weight on the economy. And, uh, you know, the Fed Reserve has been aggressively raising interest rates for more than a year to try to slow things down and quell inflation. And that's going to play a role. So the economy is incredibly vulnerable. Uh, you know, again, as I said, a lot of economists think we're going into rec- I I personally think we could get through without recession, uh, but, uh, but many economists do not. And I wouldn't argue with them strongly uh, because the economy does have its problems. And now you're throwing this debt limit drama into the mix. So hopefully lawmakers... Uh, you know, understand that, recognize that, and uh, figure out a way uh, forward here without uh, doing too much damage uh, in the next few weeks. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, let's just try to get through the month. But thank you so much, Mark. No, my pleasure. Thanks so much for the opportunity, Ethan. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for tuning in. People love using analogies to explain the debt ceiling. People compare the U.S. government to a delinquent credit card holder, someone who spends all sorts of money and threatens not to pay it back. They compare the politics of the debt ceiling to a game of chicken where both sides are betting the other backs down before they do. Some people call it a hostage negotiation, all apt, all fair. But the best analogy that I've heard is from the journalist Derek Thompson, who likens the absurdity of the debt ceiling to the movie Banshees of Inishirin, where an aspiring fiddler cuts off his own fingers to avoid hanging out with an annoying acquaintance. It's a great analogy. I I can't hope to beat it. The only thing I would change about it, though, is that you can still play the fiddle with nine fingers. Or eight. A A pro could even play with seven. But the debt ceiling is different. If the U.S. breaches its debt limit next month and defaults on its obligations, I think it could irreparably undermine its global standing. It would be like chopping off nine fingers. And I bet you can guess the only one lawmakers would leave us with. 
If you like this show, please leave us a rating and a review. Tell a friend about us and tell us about it. And tell us what topics you think we've missed at my email, ethan at internationalintrigue.io. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Monday. Monday.